0: Greetings, I'm Tricia Kuffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today's book is Millennials in Architecture, Generations, Disruption, and the Legacy of a Profession, published by the University of Texas Press in 2019. And our author is Darius Solohub. Hi, Darius. Welcome to the show. Hi, Trish.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Uh, so let's start with, uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: So I'm an architect, and I, uh, for the last 25 years, I've been teaching at a university. I started uh, in practice, and I try to balance uh, you know, the practical world of architecture with the teaching world of architecture. And I just finished this book.
0: Uh, sounds great. So uh, what was your motivation for writing this book?
1: So it sort of came upon me by a bit of a surprise. I was uh, asked to be the director of the school, and I was doing that, and the dean had asked if I would uh, run a colloquium on, on architectural education. And in doing so, we invited the university librarian, who uh, had been doing a lot of research on millennials, and especially in the context of library science and uh, and online learning, and he'd given about 100 you know, lectures and focus groups on the topic. We brought him in to speak to our uh, to our little group, and uh, I asked him afterwards. I said, "This is really fascinating. Would you be willing to kind of work with me to look at look at millennials in the context of architectural education?" And he said, "Yeah, sure." We wrote a paper. It was accepted. We gave it at a conference, and then uh, that led to this book.
0: No, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Who are these millennials?
1: Well, millennials uh, are. The, you know the students that I would contend are you know the last wave of millennials are, are are still in our schools and they are about to kind of take over the profession of architecture at a uh, particularly interesting time. Uh, we we can uh, we can get into the specifics of when generate one when one generation uh, seeds the sort of the the reins to another. Um, that's a whole you know other argument that we're in right now. We seem to be in a moment where. We're, we're not quite sure where millennials end and the generation that follows uh, comes in.
0: So what was your, so you're, you're a professor, so what was your interest in studying uh, this generation? Why is it important?
1: Well, I think it's really important that every, you know, every uh, couple of years, uh, academia reevaluate itself and seeing if it's getting its uh, message across. And it just seemed to me at the time that we'd gone through such, you know, transformations uh, in how we teach and how digital technology had moved in, and I was wondering whether we were hitting our mark. And uh, and I, I found that we were maybe way off, and maybe that's one of the motivations uh, for for writing the book. I started writing about, about uh, millennials in schools, but then I very quickly shifted over to looking at millennials, both in practice and the academy, you know, in architecture in general.
0: So what did your research find about uh- this particular generation that's going to, um, as you say, kind of take on uh, the next challenges?
1: Yeah, so I I found that at a kind of fundamental level, the the values and characteristics were almost diametrically opposed to to the generation that I came up in and and the way that I was taught. Uh, We were taught a very, very sort of highly uh, theory-based look at architecture. Uh, It was very highfalutin. It was based on all sorts of uh, linguistic theories. And I found amongst the, the millennial generation that that maybe we'd gone up a little bit too far in the clouds and they were looking towards a more pragmatic approach to the future. Uh, I also came of, you know, age in a generation that was a, we were all kind of free agents. Who we're all sort of, you know, competing with everyone else and, and doing it alone. And, and I found a, a general sort of collaborative trend amongst millennials uh, that was also uh, very different than our own. And, uh, and the last was a kind of a a, a gesture towards, uh, the public sector and the, and and civic work, uh, a, a desire to really kind of do work that matters rather than work that would get fame or sort of artistic, uh, approbation.
0: So what are their, uh, characteristics, you know, I mean, every generation, um, wants to reinvent the wheel or, um, Invent a new wheel. So what is it about millennials and how are you teaching them differently now than uh, past generations? I guess I'm, I don't know what I am. I guess I'm an ex. My uh, well, parents are boomers. I mean,
1: again, yeah, I mean, the the, the brackets between uh, generations are pretty widely argued. So I, I consider myself an ex. Uh, I was born in 1961, but a lot of other demographers would consider me a boomer. So uh generally I consider generation X born between uh, 1960 and uh, the early 80s.
0: Okay well I, I'm going to, I'll say I'm a little bit younger so um, I'll take the younger uh, younger side of generation X then. Um, so how are you teaching them differently in schools and, and what are you talking to other uh, schools about with this generation?
1: Well, I think there's a real desire to kind of bring practice into, uh, into the academy that we're trying to do far more realistic projects and less conceptual and less theoretical projects. I, you know, I think again, the, the, the three characteristics that I cite in the book, kind of practicality over theory, uh, a kind of collaborative sense rather than go it alone. Uh, and, you know, and then a, a kind of a civic mindedness rather than, uh, maybe another, you know, the, the more, uh, Pre-agent aspects of, of Generation X and the generations before, and it's all sort of uh, it's all held together by this uh, you know profound digital acumen of uh, many different um, you know many different sort of digital aptitudes you know uh, really uh, having a, a dramatic effect on on the Millennial generation. Uh, it's very different than it affects other generations millennials were born into a digital world and all of us uh, came to it from somewhere else. So I I consider myself a digital immigrant.
0: That's true. So I guess I would be too, because um, yeah, the, uh, the internet, it was, i in my late, uh, mid to late twenties before uh, we had a first website pop up on a computer screen.
1: Right. Right. I I, uh, went through all of, uh, all of school without using the computer. I used a computer to write my, Final application for a travel grant when I graduated graduate school.
0: Um, so, do you teach undergraduate and graduate, or do you find it? Uh, is there people going back to school that um, do they want to do a, a hybrid? Is it all digital or some hand drawing, or, or what's where's architecture going from here?
1: So you know, it varies school by school. We are uh, we are very much a digital school, and we've been so since the early '90s, um, earlier than a lot of other schools uh, you know, across the so-called digital divide. There's still a couple of holdout schools out there that will, you know, the first year is is pure analog. That you sit down at a big drafting table with with those big drafting machines and you draw by hand, and then you know after after you've mastered that, you move into the digital world. We start that simultaneously. We'll have you draw by hand as a fresh venom and also look at some pretty sophisticated uh, 3D softwares.
0: Um, so what are the millennials you're talking about here, you know, they're they're going into offices. What did, what exactly is it that they want to disrupt? Or do they even know yet?
1: <laughs> I don't I don't know that they're coming up with a disruptive agenda. I think they're what they're finding are sort of you know older practices that they don't necessarily accept anymore. one uh, of the biggest ones uh, that you know, the profession is struggling with right now is that, you know, I was, I was uh, brought up in a kind of all or nothing world where you stayed up for many, many nights to finish a project. And, uh, and it, you know, it took, it was a, it was a bit of a struggle. And then when you went into an office, there was a real kind of sweatshop mentality that you work, you know, you, you cut your teeth and for a number of years, you were staying every night and it was a culture of overtime. And, and uh, I am hearing from firms that the millennials just don't want to abide by that. The, the there's a, there's a quality of life mandate that is different amongst the up and coming generation, uh, that, that we certainly kind of took for granted and that's just the way it was. And they don't want to, they don't want to play that way.
0: Okay. Well, this is a question from my mom too. So I, I know we talked about just a little bit previously, uh, you know, millennials want a 40 hour week, but my mom, my mom is a boomer. And, um, so to play devil's advocate, what's wrong with the 40 hour week? What, what's, what's unique about architecture that requires more than a 40-hour week?
1: Well, you know, that's a really complicated question. And it kind of goes back to the culture of architecture as, you know, as this artistic endeavor. You know, a work of art is never finished. And you have to kind of put your, your maximum, you know, heart and soul into something. And that just can't fit within a forty-hour 40-hour 40 bracket. And that goes back to... You know the beginnings of modern architectural education, which came out of you know German and, and French academies in Europe in the 19th century. Uh, the term, the term uh, sort of working late on a project in architecture is called being on charrette, and charrette means cart in French, and it literally means that when the when the drawings are being loaded up to take to the academy to be reviewed in, in Paris, that the students would still be on the cart, you know, finishing their drawings while it was being being rolled away, so that it was like you put every ounce of energy and time that you had into something to get it right. And that, that mentality doesn't stay in the schools. It works its way into, into the design profession. It's, it's, when you get into the kind of basic economies of, of supply and demand, there's a lot of, there's a lot of schools producing architects in the United States and there's about twice as many architects coming out of school as there are jobs. So, uh, so, you know, the pickings are really good for firms. They can, uh, if you don't want to work that that amount of time, there's somebody out there that will. And so it's it's creating this uh, this kind of supply and demand and then there's this culture that's driving it forward. And I think the millennials really want to disrupt that. I mean, that's what I've been hearing. I've conducted many, many focus groups. I've done some polling. They believe that, you know, their education created a very, very unhealthy environment for them emotionally. And we're also finding that there's... Uh, there's enrollment declines significant enrollment declines in schools and that students are just, you know, not choosing architecture as a, as a life path because, uh, in, you know, many are, are saying that, 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 uh, that prospect of, uh, of a lot of work for not a lot of pay and, and, uh, long hours, uh, just keeps them away from it.
0: So what are the, um, well, I know in your book that you mentioned something about, you know, uh, is there a high divorce rate among architects and this, uh, this culture, do you think this is something that can change? Can they can firms adapt to this reality? Are they missing out on talent that really good talent that would work hard, but maybe not a 60 hour week?
1: Well, Well, there is a, there is a high divorce rate. There's also a very high suicide rate amongst architects, um, which is, uh, you know, which is, uh, which is vexing. Um, you know, there there are signs of change. I think uh, you know many firms are trying to not you know they're trying to be a bit more organized and not lead a culture of overtime. Uh, there's also you know there's a one of the one of the tendencies of millennials that's different from other generations in the workplace is the is the propensity to shift switch jobs uh, and and Gallup. Polling has found that millennials switch jobs at a rate three times faster than other generations measured at the same time in their lives. So it's a longitudinal analysis. And when we probed that question in in, in focus groups, uh, there were many answers. Many of it, you know, why should I stay pigeonholed in one thing? I, you know, my goal is to is to learn as much as I can about a profession. Once I stop learning, I'm going to leave. Uh, if uh, if if someone is sort of suppressed and you know. Uh, in their talents, they leave if they're asked to, to work more than they they think they should be working, and abused, they leave. So I think the profession is recognizing that, and, they, and uh, I, I, there's an assessment that I quote in the book that the U.S. economy in 2016 lost like 32 billion dollars because of of uh, workers, you know, switching jobs. I mean, it costs money for a firm to deal with that transition to hire someone else, and so. Uh, Architecture firms have created these mechanisms by which to retain uh, people working in those firms. Uh, they are uh, offering uh, sort of continuing education. Many of the larger firms have internal universities and research uh, outfits. So at you know, the end of the year review, they'll say, well, you're doing great. And what we want to do is give you a raise, but we also want to give you a, an opportunity to work on this you know, new emerging uh, database. or we want you to do some pro bono work. With a community, uh, build a farm in you know in Africa, and uh, people just jump at that, and they wind up staying in their jobs, other, you know, because they feel more fulfilled. So there is a kind of a way, you know, the the in a almost intuitive way, I think the business sector is is uh, is changing and shifting. I don't know that they're doing it consciously, based on you know specifically retaining the land.
0: You said in your preface that um, you, you started kind of this whole book, et cetera, and, and learning about it with a Habitat for Humanity studio uh, with your students. Can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a funny story. I, I was approached by a good friend of mine who was, was on the board for a local Habitat shop, and he thought, you know, this would be a great thing to do in a, in a studio in school. And I started you know, looking into it a little bit, and, and there wasn't a lot of design latitude. I mean, you had to build a house on a very tight budget. There wasn't a lot of room for creativity. And I said, well, you know, I don't know if this is going to work. And he said, well, we should just try it. So I put it off for a couple of years. And then one, you know, about three weeks before the semester was about to start, I had a research grant that that, um, didn't get funded. And I had been planning to use that for a design studio. So I very, very kind of quickly rallied and said, you know, let's get this out of the way. I'm going to try to do this. And, uh, you know, I was bracing for the worst. I was bracing that students wouldn't want to take it because the only, the only opportunity in our curriculum was the one, what we call the options year where students after a really rigorous curriculum, they can kind of get to do whatever they want. And there were all sorts of esoteric projects that we would, you know, people would do like, you know, a new train start train station in Hong Kong or something on the moon or something really cool. And, uh, I thought no one would want to do affordable housing because it just didn't, you know, offer any artistic option and I got the complete opposite response every student in the school wanted to take that studio and they didn't want it and I found out later that all the other things they thought were kind of faculty indulgences and they was like fantasy architecture and I really had no desire to do that they wanted to do you know they wanted to do a studio where they're designing a house for a family in, in need and they didn't really care that the budget was tight and they had they were really restricted in what they wanted to do that was their mission and that was a real eye opener.
0: I don't know. I am I guess I'm a generation X. I'm late 40s, we'll say. Um, and uh, I think that's kind of true, maybe even of my – do you think it's true of even our generation? You know, I, I got my master's degree in landscape architecture, and um, I was really looking forward to doing something a little more real, maybe just because I was older and I went back to school for a career change. But, I mean, a Habitat for Humanity project sounds pretty exciting, uh, I think, to someone like me. Um, are you doing any more studios like that? Or what are you finding that you're, you're changing in your teaching curriculum?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I did seven Habitat studios after that studio, and now I'm doing a similar thing where we're working with the Economic Development Corporation in, uh, in my city, in Newark, New Jersey, uh, on specific things that they, they point out to do. And, and the response has been great, and I deal with a lot of community you know, groups. You know what? I what I want to point out is that when you start talking about generations, everybody immediately says, "Well, wait a second. I mean, our, our generation did the same thing. I mean, so what's so special about these about these millennials?" Uh, I, I think the important thing to know is that you know every generation is a is a group of people bound together over sort of you know an argument or a kind of a conflict as to what's what's important. And you know, in my generation in architecture, we we, uh, we didn't really care about the practicality of things. We wanted to uh, achieve a sort of higher goal of, of technological transformation or artistic transformation. And we wanted, you know, everybody strives to work in a design firm where you had the maximal amount of choices. And to, You know, to work in a firm that, that uh, just did affordable housing was, uh, was often something that people wouldn't go into because it was kind of cookie cutter. You were really limited in what your choices were, and that there was no budget for design, so you did not have the amount of time to really experiment with anything. And uh, I, I, you know, that was what was setting my my belief system that this studio wouldn't be appreciated. But in fact, the you know the groups that I had, which were in that class were decided in the millennial, um, did not want to do that. They wanted to apply something else. In the seven subsequent studios that I had. It wasn't always exactly the same tenor. There would always be, you know, one or two students that didn't want, you know, they wanted to be, you know, artistic and they didn't care about the budget and they didn't, they didn't want to, you know, run with that program. Uh, so you'll always find the outliers. And what's interesting about the outliers is that they they become the kind of vanguards of the next generational change. And generations uh, they change. There are um, uh, there prominent and recessive generations. So, you know, millennials and boomers are sort of prominent generation and, and Generation X and whoever is following the millennials are recessive, meaning that they, they are distinct, but they follow, a, um, they follow a slightly different agenda that makes them distinct, but they more or less follow the lead of the generation that immediately came before them. So, you know, Generation Z in many ways are, are following the kind of the millennial, uh, the millennial uh, characteristics.
0: Well, that's interesting. Actually, my bachelor's degree is in psychology, so that's kind of um, that's kind of interesting. So um, this generation that you're talking about, X is going out, and the generation you're finding, I, we're running out of alphabet letters Z, is it now?
1: Yeah, yeah. you know, and it's funny. Um, so generations often kind of uh, have a, the, you know, they, they follow the letters. So there are a lot of people that call millennials generation Y it never really stuck. Millennials, uh, kind of took hold, but generation Z is following that sequence of so X, Y, and Z. Uh, they, um, uh, some people called early millennials echo boomers. So, you know, arguing that they were the children of boomers. I heard a new one that, uh, the new generation combination of Z and boomer, they're called zoomers.
0: <laughs> that sounds like a funny name. I think I'd rather be a zoomer.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think Zoomer is, Zoomer is better. I, you know, it'll, uh, you know, the Boomers didn't really uh, take on that name until the early '80s. It wasn't something that was around in the 1960s. Everybody was referring to, you know, the Me Generation or the Pepsi Generation or something else. So uh, it takes a while for the name of a generation to kind of settle in.
0: And and find its and find its footing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a generation knows it's it's of a certain, you know, uh, there's a there's something that binds them together. Uh, I'm still on the fence as to whether uh whether this generation z um, started when a lot of the, the I rely a lot on uh, Pew research trust uh, they have done some really significant pretty analytical uh polling on uh, on generations, and they have enough data going back to previous generations to look at it again longitudinally it's not an age effect they're asking people the same questions at, at the same age over over a number of years and they came out a couple of years ago and just unilaterally said you know what the millennial age is over and it ended in 96 and I had been you know working on the theory that the, you know the last millennials were born sometime in the early to mid2000s so that's almost you know eight or eight or nine years sooner and I just at first I didn't kind of believe that I thought it was it was just Pew kind of exercising their kind of uh, prioritar- pr- uh, proprietary kind of right in studying generations to declare when it was over. I have two daughters. One was born in 95 and the other was born in 98. And when I told the younger one that, you know, there's some people that don't think you're a millennial, and then she said, that's not true. I'm definitely like, you know, I'm definitely like my older sister. So it's, a, I'm, you know, I'm tending to lean that maybe they're calling it a little bit too soon, but, uh, but this younger generation that's coming out, uh, you know, especially after the Parkland shooting and Greta Thunberg, I mean, they're clearly a different generation uh, and, and, and with a different voice. And so it'll be interesting to see where the, where the final sort of brackets fall uh, with people thinking about it.
0: Well, that's true. Well, what about uh, you talking here about different teaching styles a little bit about the bow arts, uh, you know, teaching style, you talk about uh, the, the cart and the charrette. Um, are you teaching this generation differently, or are you keeping up with uh, technology? I've gone back to school and, and I've I've learned all this software, and uh, I'm like I could I could I could whip through this software just as well as any of the rest of those little youngsters.
1: Yeah, I mean those they're you know softwares have been around you know for for forty fifty years now, so it's not. Uh, it's not just generally the kind of the digital aptitudes, but I think it's again it goes back to the it goes back to the value system. Um, I think one of the things that millennials grew up with uh, is a kind of flexibility that you uh, you know you can you can get to an end by various means you know through software or analog or different software so long as so long as you know, you, you, you feel comfortable in the, the the practicality of the result at the end that it kind of works. Uh, In in the academy, that gets around to uh, you know there are students that want to be in class, they want to you know talk to and listen to a teacher. There are other students that don't go to class uh, that listen to the lectures uh, you know that are recorded. Uh, There are students that you know get entire degrees in online education. Uh, So there's there's various ways that you can get towards your end, and it really it really depends on on how it suits you. Uh, in the academy, I mean, a lot of my colleagues don't believe in online education. They think that uh, it's, it's faulty, it's flawed, it doesn't sink in, uh, it's superficial. Um, I, don't, I don't believe that. I think, uh, you know, we all, when we want to figure something out, go to YouTube to figure out how to put a screen in or cook an egg. And, uh, and the, the ability to augment our teaching through other media is just beginning. And if we, don't, uh, if we don't begin to adopt and grasp it and master it, it'll be our loss as educators.
0: So, in your book, how are you um, educating other academics on how to uh, change architecture? Is the profession going to have to change? Schools going to have to change? What's going to happen next?
1: Yeah, I think I think there's some you know there's some profound changes that are coming. I think the biggest one, and this maybe goes a little bit to what I'm working on next, is uh, you know that that education that I described to you—the Bozar education, the studio you had studios and. In, in in landscape architecture, uh, you know, that's the sacred cow of, of, design education that you've got to, you know, pack people into a room for, for 12 or 14 weeks where they basically live there and they, they, you know, focus you know, exclusively on this one problem. And in the end, you know, that sort of, you know, collective pressure leads to the work being really great. Uh, you know, I'm finding that a lot of our students, uh, you know, eventually they start working at home or they start working with a couple of people that they, uh, feel comfortable working with and they create their own little sub studios somewhere else, uh, that the kind of, you know, being sitting next to somebody so that if you didn't, you didn't remember that software command, you can reach over and say, Hey, what was that control Z or control D? Uh, you could do that by texting them. So, you know, the kind of community, the fluid, the fluidity of communication is, is, is there, you don't necessarily have to be in the same place. Uh, and, uh, boy, I'm, you know, I'm getting real resistance from that because there is this whole notion about studio culture and how important it is. And I'm not saying that we basically blow up the studio, but I'm, I'm saying that, you know, there may be different, different uh, methods and different strategies to, to achieve an end. Uh, I had a, a student who did some polling work amongst uh, our, our, uh, our classes at NJIT, and she found some really disturbing things that a lot of women feel threatened in studios. You know, the late night shenanigans tend to be kind of frat boy based and uh, and they're not productive. And a lot of people don't want to be in studio because they feel that, you know, the people that are there all the time, they don't really get anything done. They just, you know, they're right out of high school and they they find themselves in a kind of a, a house. The studio becomes a frat house and it's really just about horsing around and not dedicated work. Others have felt, you know, threatened, um, sexually threatened in situations like that. So. You know, we accept it as you know, it's always been that way. And I think it's time for a reappraisal.
0: Well, yeah, that's true. I think being older, going back to school, I took it I took it a little bit more seriously and some of the um there was a little bit of that, you know, people were just hanging out in there throwing nerf balls back and forth and it was kind of um yeah, I think that there is a time to uh, to do a revamp. Maybe not um uh throw out the baby with the bathwater but uh, a revamp on studio for sure, because there was times I was like, it was very distracting for me to work when, you know, the, the younger ones are, yeah, playing Nerf ball over, (laughs) over and around the desks. And it's like, uh, okay, I got to get stuff done.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's also, you know, the studio is supposed to be where you test out what you, you know, the other stuff, you know, techniques that you learned outside of studio. So you know, you know in design education, there's a lot of technical knowledge you're supposed to absorb. There's a lot of historical knowledge, and you know the studio is supposed to be the place you know where you take all those tools out of the box and you work on them. Uh, we find that that students just don't really know how to do that and they they come in and the in some cases they haven't absorbed those other lessons, the cultural or the technological lessons uh, that's That's a way that online learning can can make sure that that happens. Um, in Chapter Eight, I, I talk about this, the, uh, something called the digital badge, where a digital badge is a way that you can kind of verify certain certain knowledge, um, and it's similar to you know what badges were in the in the you know in the scouting where you had a badge and basket you know making or a badge and swimming. This is something that certifies that you can do certain things. So. If, for instance, you know, we had a, an advanced studio in school and we had uh, a structural system associated with it, you'd have to kind of show the currency and badges on concrete construction. Or if it was a theater, you'd have to take a kind of a specialty course to be able to do that. And so that liberates the studio from being kind of remedial of kind of forcing you to learn that knowledge that, you know, you need to kind of uh, do that task and that it, uh, it, it can elevate the studio. It can make it a lot far loftier. Uh, The other thing I describe is something called uh, low residency learning. And you're seeing this in a lot of MFA programs and, you know, MBA programs have been doing this since the 50s, where you you do a lot of online work and then you show up for a a long weekend Uh, in the MBA programs. You know, it's typically in in London and then Hong Kong and New York, learn sort of different cultures and business practice. And when you show up for those weekends, it's pretty intensive. And the rest of the time you're working on things at your own pace. Uh, I think you could have a very productive design studio that way where you kind of, you meet at the beginning, you have a kind of intense period, and then you work on your own back at home in your own studio. And then you come back in, you know, a couple of times uh, during the semester, or you do it in different places. You go to the site and then you go back to, you know, Barcelona to have it reviewed by local constituents. That would, I think, be a really powerful learning tool.
0: Muscovich, so you I have a question. Uh, do you find students with online learning, um, you know, it's, um, I can do it. I, I've had my own business. I, I have the self-discipline, but do you find that uh, our students, maybe when they do online learning, do they have the discipline to do the classes and, and absorb the material, or does it just depend on the student uh, what kind of learning suits them best?
1: Well, I mean, online learning is, is, again, it's not the be all and the end all. I mean, the interesting thing is when you, when you poll millennials and you ask them if they like online learning, they really don't. They, they prefer, they prefer um, you know, face-to-face or, or sort of service practice-based learning. But, you know, the, the percentage every year keeps getting higher and higher of students taking online learning. And, and you know, the, the younger generations will take online courses just purely out of flexibility. So the academy has responded by, by creating the thing called the hybrid, or in, in some cases it's called the flipped classroom, and these have been around in other programs for 20 years, where, where what you, you, know, you do the homework in class, so you sort of test your abilities with something in class and group uh, situations, and lectures are all taken online, so you need to be basically prepared when you show up for class. And the analytics that are built into systems like that are pretty powerful. So, you know, a teacher will know, uh, what people, you know, who came in with what knowledge. They'll be quizzed on that knowledge at the end of each one of the modules. So, so you know, the professor will be able to look at the grading. If, if, you know, there's one subject area that everyone consistently didn't understand, they can, they can revamp the in class session to focus on that to make sure that people really get it. So it's a much, it's a much higher calibrated interactivity. Uh, rather than just, you know, online as being sort of cheaper and more efficient that, that that I strive for, that we can really have some powerful teaching tools available to us if we just hybridize and put a lot of these new technologies together and join them with older technology.
0: Uh, what do you teach in millennials? I mean, and um, i just say this a little bit from my, from my own experience, what I saw, do you, like I said, I thought that was interesting. You talk about like badges, et cetera. Um, and they do online learning, do they make sure that, you know, they, they're really doing the work that uh, they're bringing in?
1: Well, I mean, there's all sorts of ways, you know, that you can assess, but there's all sorts of ways that you can skirt the system. Uh, so those that really don't want to do it, they're going to, and eventually they're, you know, the proof is in the pudding. I think the real test of all of these systems is, is in, in a kind of practice and uh, to, to sort of, you know, come into an environment and show you're able to do it. Uh, you know there are social. Uh, I, I've been hearing from a lot of folks that millennials come in with an incredible resumes and incredible sort of experience in doing things, and, and then that when they get into the workplace, there's a there's a timidity sometimes and an inability to to understand the culture that one finds oneself in. So I think that there's an additional learning that comes with that. I think you know we really need to think rethink our internship uh, scenarios in in really all the professions. I think. One of the really unnerving statistics that's out there is is uh, as computerization takes hold, artificial intelligence taking hold of things, you know, the professions are pretty much immune from that. I mean, the, the, the uh, projection from uh, computerization uh, displacing architecture is, is eight. so one out of 50 architects will be replaced by a computer. You know, those are pretty good odds, but when you go, you know, look further, the percentage of uh, drafting drafters uh, is, is 52%. So one out of every two drafters in the next 10 years will be replaced by an artificial intelligence. The drafter, is, is the, that is the internship phase. That's how you, you, know, you learn the ropes, how you cut your teeth. And if that's been eviscerated by computers, how are we going to educate that next group is the, is the challenge that befalls us right now
0: or who's going to program the computers because somebody has to know it before they can uh, program a computer to do something.
1: Well, that is the challenge. And that's one of the things I'm calling on my profession that, you know, we should be programmed rather than basically trying to fight, fight this off. We should be the ones programming the computers because if, if, if someone else gets involved in that, then it's going to be their, you know, their biases towards design that will prevail. And, and in some cases, those may not be the biases that, you know, those of us in the design professions want to see computerized and the public will essentially buy what is, you know, the cheapest. And I think we'll all suffer.
0: Uh, so how are you teaching design then in your school? What are you, what else are you doing that's innovative for this next generation?
1: Well, I'm trying to turn everything on its head. I, I, uh, You know, in our curriculum, you're supposed to sit in the studio for for six hours. You're not supposed to leave the room. You're supposed to either be talking to your instructor or you're supposed to be uh, sitting there, you know, working away. I I don't do that. I I set up an appointment schedule and you pick, you know, a time in that six hours. You show up and the rest of the time you can be working wherever you want to work. Um, I, I think that's a big waste of time and I think students really appreciate that. Uh, you probably remember from school, the traditional sort of end of semester ritual is that you present your work to, you know, a bunch of people sitting around and they sit there and and students, you know, put up their drawings and take them down. And that takes, you know, six or seven hours. Uh, I do what are called gallery style reviews where all of the students, um, pin up their work and the, the guests that come, they, they circulate. So I set my phone for 15 minutes and when the buzzer goes off, somebody just moves to the right. So uh, just recently, I had a review where I had 16, 15 students and I had 32 reviewers. So those students were, were standing there for, you know, all afternoon describing their work to different groups. And, you know, the beauty of that is that by the third or fourth presentation a studio makes, uh, a student makes, they get their narrative down. They know what's great about their project. They know its shortcomings. They know how to talk about it. In the, in the former environment, what would happen is, you know, you'd present your project and somebody would say, usually the senior person say, oh, this reminds me of a story. And they would go off on this long-winded story. And other people <laughs> would argue over that. And the student is sort of standing there with their, you know, hands folded. And then, you know, 20 minutes goes by and the teacher says, well, we have to move on to the next one. And the student who's worked for 14 weeks gets like this, this story that is really told for, for the benefit of the critics. And so they were really getting nothing out of it. And, uh, and so this, the, the gallery style scenario really turns everything on its head and it's really very much about the student.
0: Oh, I laughed. Yeah. That is so funny. Yeah. Because, um, um, yeah, I, I, I love public speaking and, uh, so I was pretty good at doing my narrative, but the, the younger students were uh, struggling with that, but that's, that's a great way to, uh, to do it and practice and take studio to, um. And the whole and, and the whole review session thing—I hadn't thought about that. But um, are, what else are you doing that's innovative uh, for millennials with this uh, with the whole review process? Do you agree with it, or can, can't we just do it better?
1: Well, I, you know, I also uh, I have students do uh, do little podcasts of their work. So you know, we just did a we just did a project that uh, that involved many different universities. So you know. What we did is this, each, each of the students at the end of the semester, the narrative that they did in the gallery style review, I then had a little bit of grant money. I sent them into a studio, and they did what we're doing right now. I mean, they talked over, uh, you know, a PowerPoint Camtasia, um, and Camtasia. And, you know, it was pretty well produced. And then that's what we sent to the University of Pennsylvania students who took on the same, you know, a portion of the same project so that we're kind of using video uh, more in, in how we present and what we do. Uh, I also really try hard to get um, to get involved with with public you know public sector projects, and I, I really work hard to get a little bit of funding for it. So one of the things that I do is I, I have somebody else pay for three D printing, which can get really expensive. You know, it's a really great technology, and it's getting better and better every year. But for a student to print, you know, three D could cost hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. And if somebody else is picking up the tab, uh, when you see you know a, like something 3D printed every night and see the project evolve over time with the design decisions made, it kind of takes your breath away. So I'm trying to figure out ways to bring, you know, emergent technology into the classroom. We're using augmented reality. We've done studios and virtual reality. So really bringing that into the classroom and testing it out. And I think everybody is a lot more engaged both on the student side but also on the faculty and especially on the, the stakeholder side.
0: Oh yeah, that's that we actually we did. We had a lot of three D printers um, at my school, and it was it was fast. I was just floored because I'm coming back to school much later, and I'm like, wow, this is this is cool.
1: It, it is cool. It's expensive, <laughs> yeah. You know? And uh, you know, when you go to you go to Harvard, everybody's got a three D printer at their desk, and I think some of those students that come from means and they can they can afford and do that or. You know they've they've worked towards it, or they have some scholarship money to do it. But uh, you know, at at a state school, it can be very expensive. So I think that that little gesture from the stakeholder community to provide those funds is really it goes a long way.
0: Yeah, I think that's what they had. Is they had probably had uh, a, a grant or something to to do that. It was, uh, but it was it was super cool. Well, actually, you know, we talk about. I will go back to you a little bit about. Um, you know, like the internship process and, and like bringing people, you know, into the uh, profession and how it's done. And I was uh, recently kind of um, impressed uh, without going too much detail, but uh, there was a a teaching hospital and all the students just followed around uh, the doctors and just how they were just, you know, kind of, they'd already been through school and how they were learning. And, um, you know, I kind of find that missing in some of the landscape architecture firms. You just kind of get pigeonholed on a computer instead of just like really following around and uh, and really learning. Um, is the profession going to? Is our businesses going to? Are they going to be able to adapt to a new climate and and new and, and students uh, coming in?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, they're they're. The- the profession is kind of lurching towards some change. Um, the, uh, you know, the accreditation bodies have set up a program of looking at innovative ways towards, um, towards internship. So I think they, they, they see the writing on the wall. And I've spoken to some of the leadership there and, and shared my research with them. So I, I think they're heeding it, and I, I applaud them for that. Uh, whether, it's, you know, whether it's too little, too late, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I spent Chapter 10 and 11 in my book looking at other professions on how their you know degree structures are, are based and the history of that going back through the history of sort of of uh, generational change is kind of illuminating you understand when you know when the uh the dominant generation sort of led change and and that we're in one of those moments now so i think we really need to kind of get up and 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 create some uh, new models for for uh, for working uh, i'm particularly interested in how the medical profession trains trains doctors you know there is a there is a sort of set you know there's a pre-med there's a medical school and then you do your residency uh, in a, in a certain area and then after that residency you do another internship in a, in, a, in a higher specialty so you can really you know you can really hone your craft uh, post graduation in certain environments the reality is that is that you know Medicaid uh, Medicare pays for the federal government pays for a lot of that for a lot of that education, I don't know that the federal government is going to pony up and pay the design professions to do it. Uh, you know, so someone else is going to have to kind of step in and be able to do it. But but the, you know, the building world is a, is there's there's uh, billions if not trillions of dollars that go into it. So I think there's a way that we all sort of harness our energies, a way of figuring out how to make a better model.
0: Yeah, because like you just said, I mean, design is still important, and especially with uh, climate change and. Uh, et cetera, How we're designing um, is going to have to change.
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, we're looking at you know the, the, just the moving around of populations around the earth that are that are driven by climate change. Will you know cities will be just erupting overnight, and, and the design issues associated with that, the physical planning of it, will be will be legion. So there's a lot of work to be done out there, and you know it's just a question of whether we can muster the, you know our energies to to, to be there in time is what I focus on in the end of the book. So I'm sort of optimistic that we can do this and that, uh, you know, the millennial generation is very much a generation of optimists and hopefully they can rise to that. But I hope that older generations can empower them and enable them to do that.
0: Well, I'm optimistic too. I, I think so. Um, age is just a number. And uh, I went back to school and I can, like I said, I was like, I could do this stuff just as quick and fast as, as they can. And um uh, you know, I, I have uh, taken a classical drawing class and it was a Beau arts uh, type studio, but I saw there was definite value in sitting there in that particular way and really like learning and doing and practicing. But um, yeah, you know, trying to combine things from different professions, I think is important. And, and landscape architecture is actually, uh, they just sent out a survey too about, uh, yeah, want to know what people think about their education and what the professions think about. So I think that they're going that same way too.
1: Yeah. I'm going to be speaking to uh, the landscape architecture school uh, at Rutgers University in the, in the spring. So that'll be interesting. I've spoken to uh, a number of schools and firms now. about so Hopefully I'll get a receptive audience.
0: Oh, I think so. Um, well, this is, this is a fascinating book. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to put all this research together Um, And I'm excited to see that and and, uh, thinking about new ways of teaching and doing uh, something that's so important. Um, And I'd like to thank you for being here today. Uh, And and we know we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, Can you tell our audience what exciting projects are you working on now?
1: Well, uh, you know, I'm sort of... um... A lot of people are saying, well, you know, the millennials are, you know, they're already out. What about this new generation? So, you know, the first thing I'm working on right now is a is a blog piece about uh, this transition and these, you know, who Generation Z is and how they kind of fit into uh, a lot that has been written about generations. It's a it's a relatively new subject in social science, and I think there's a lot to say about it. And, you know, whether Pew was right or not that, that the the transition happened in '96, I, I think is still up up to debate. And I hope that that debate is a lively one. The other thing I'm working on, uh, I'm working with a number of people who are in the, the co-working industry. I think you know what that is, like what we work is, that, that people work in, in environments that are um, kind of a freelance environment, but that are much more casual and uh, that allow for a lot of connectivity with different sort of disciplines uh, and, and productivity levels about applying some of that learning to uh to design education and architectural education. Uh you know what is, if the studio of the future is is going to have a different kind of curriculum uh, what 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 are its spaces going to be? And and that's a really really fruitful conversation that I'm having with both some seasoned educators uh in California and New York and then uh, I, I've been meeting with some of the people in the larger co-working industries including WeWork
0: Oh, that sounds fascinating. So, are you planning on another book or two uh, on the next generation?
1: I would like to. I would. I've got a, a you know really fascinating book that it has been in, in in the works on this curious place called the Meadowlands, which is close to where I am, uh, which is going to be underwater soon. So that's going to be an edited volume. I can probably put it together. So it's a question of whether that stays on the back burner or that gets to the front burner. is something I have to decide in decide in the next year, the next couple months, actually. But, uh, you know, we'll see how these blog pieces go. If I, if I you know, get those going and get a conversation going, like I did about millennials, uh, that might uh, that might take center stage and we might move to another, you know, a sequel to it. I, I hear that the books are kind of running out a little bit, so I'm hoping maybe I get a second edition out of the University of Texas. Perhaps that would be great.
0: Oh, well, go ahead and give yourself a quick plug. Uh, can we listen to those podcasts ourselves?
1: uh i i don't have them up yet i, I they're, they're they're gonna be blog pieces so i'm gonna i'm gonna have those available um i didn't i, I may have said podcasts. i meant they're
0: blogs oh they're blogs oh okay oh so we'll, they'll be coming soon okay Yep. Yep. uh well again thank you so much for being here today and uh we look forward to hearing more from you in the future all right well thank you trisha and again, I want to thank you for listening today. Again, this is Tricia from Sunny Key Lager, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today's book was Millennials in Architecture, Generations, Disruption, and a Legacy of a Profession, published by the University of Texas Press in 2019. And your author is Darius Solohub. Thank you so much for listening.